This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Bashirs, a CDC epidemiologist. We'll be discussing how sickness is transmitted by food and by water. Welcome, Dr. Bashirs. Hey, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me today. What's the magnitude of the disease burden from food and water? So, understanding the true magnitude of illnesses transmitted through food and water is challenging. Um, and when we think about magnitude, it doesn't necessarily just mean the number of people who get sick, but we also want to think about hospitalizations, deaths, and healthcare costs. Uh, some of the reasons for this are because when people get sick, with many of these different food and waterborne pathogens, they often don't actually go to the doctor. And even if they do go to the doctor, you know, they don't always get the test that would detect the pathogen that made them ill. So what happens then is this leads to a large gap between the true burden of illness and the illness that, illnesses that we have confirmed through laboratory testing. Uh, another complication is that many of these pathogens can make people sick through pathways that are different than food and water. So not just food and water makes people sick for these pathogens. Um, other ways include contact, direct contact with animals, for example. You know, different methodologies have been applied to try and overcome these gaps between, you know, this true burden and magnitude and what we actually have laboratory-confirmed data for. Um, and getting to creating those burden estimates that are accurate. So, for example, for foodborne illnesses, you know, Elaine Scallon and her colleagues estimated in 2011 that of 31 known pathogens transmitted commonly through foods, um, they cause approximately 94 million illnesses, 56,000 hospitalizations, and 1,350 deaths each year in the United States. And then there's also a paper by Sarah Collier um, that was recently published that updated estimates on the waterborne disease burden. And this estimated approximately 7.15 million waterborne illnesses that occur annually, resulting in about $3.3 billion in direct health care costs. Um, and this is just from 17 known waterborne infectious diseases in the United States. So kind of as you can see, despite all these advancements to protect our food and water supply, these illnesses remain a major burden in, in the United States. So with all that said, um, in order to, under, to get a better understanding of the ways that pathogens can be transmitted, in addition to food and waterborne routes, we went ahead and did a study looking at the proportion of illnesses uh, that are transmitted through different pathways in addition to food and water. Okay, I want to just throw in here that Sarah Collier's um, article is also published in the EID Journal in um, January 2021. Um, why did you do this study? So there are a few reasons. Uh, the methodology that we use, which is called structured expert judgment, uh, has been used increasingly to assist with burden of illness estimates in other countries, as well as globally um, for foodborne estimates that were performed by the WHO. Um, but it hasn't been applied to this extent in forming burden estimates in the United States. Uh, so we undertook this study to help inform, you know, these burden studies for here in the United States and other types of studies by providing estimates of the proportion of illnesses that are transmitted through each of a comprehensive set of five transmission pathways. Uh, the estimates from this study can then be applied in the process of creating burden estimates. So 
they do this by allowing researchers to estimate, for example, the number of illnesses, hospitalizations, or deaths caused by uh, one of the modes of transmission by specific pathogens. You know, in fact, I mentioned earlier, um, as we mentioned earlier, the paper by Sarah Collier, they have already used the results from this study to update the waterborne burden estimates in the United States. And we expect that these will be useful um, to CDC updating its foodborne burden estimates. You used reports of estimates from what you call the Structured Expert Judgment Study. What is that? Structured Expert Judgment is a methodology that can be used to combine estimates that are produced by experts to quantify uncertainty for the purpose of risk analysis when limited or no data exists. So there are multiple ways to approach this. Um, and we use a methodology called Cook's Classical Model, which is the most mathematically rigorous. Now, there is quite a bit that goes into this, uh, but for our study, we had 48 expert participants from across the United States and Canada who did participate. And, you know, they had to receive multiple training sessions in the methodology. They provided not only an estimate for the proportion of illness transmitted by each pathway, but also an uncertainty bound. So what that means, for example, you know, you can get sick from eating food contaminated with E. coli, but you can also get it from directly contacting an animal um, or consuming contaminated water. So what each expert did was estimate these kind of in this way. So based on all the research and data available, as well as my personal professional knowledge about what, what the limitations of these available data are, I estimate the proportion of illness transmitted through food is 60%, but this could be as low as 40% or as high as 77%. And experts did this for each of our five transmission pathways for each pathogen that they were assigned to. Each expert does also go through a calibration and weighting process, um, which is also applied to their responses. And then in the end, what ends up happening is the expert responses are combined to produce a single estimate with uncertainty bounds. Why did you choose this method? So structured expert judgment is really used when the ability to gather data or use other data-driven approaches is hindered by high expense, data scarcity, or just a lack of reliable data. You know, as I mentioned earlier, in the case of food and waterborne illnesses, these data gaps exist and make it challenging to approach these types of research questions with strictly data-driven approaches. You know, if it were possible to use fully data-driven approaches or complete data exists, structured expert judgment would not be necessary. Uh, structured expert judgment allows experts to apply their professional knowledge about the limitations of the data as well as combine and synthesize available data and research that we don't currently have methods that can combine that data in a mathematical way. You distinguished um, different pathways. Um, what are they? So for our study, we included five major transmission pathways. And these are considered comprehensive as well as mutually exclusive. So they cover 100% of transmission for each pathway. Um, instead of just taking estimates of a single pathway, we did all five to cover this full, comprehensive 100% of transmission. 
you know, these, the pathways that we included were foodborne transmission, waterborne transmission, uh, person-to-person, animal contact, and then environmental. In addition to these, which we consider our major pathways, we also included some nested sub-pathways that fit underneath those. Um, for example, for foodborne transmission, we included food handler-related. Uh, and then for waterborne, we also looked specifically at drinking water, recreational water, and then non-recreational, non-drinking water. And for the environmental transmission pathway, we also included environmental, but presumed to be person-to-person associated and presumed to be animal contact associated, um, but kind of lacking that direct clear link to make it confirmed person-to-person or confirmed animal contact associated. That's a pretty complicated process. Um, lots of little bits to keep track of. Uh, was there anything that surprised you? Yes. Well, you know, we knew going into this that the, the design and components of the study were critical. So really a great deal of time was spent just on designing these definitions for the transmission pathways that I talked about. Um, you know, we also had to spend a great deal of time training the experts on precisely how to use these definitions when they were providing their estimates for the study. Um, it was very interesting to me just to learn about the complexities of how transmission itself can be defined, just depending on how you choose to look at it. Um, you know, we designed, we ended up designing questions to really probe the edge cases of disease transmission in order to really test the definitions and make sure that they can be applied in the same way by every expert. Um, so these really in-depth discussions about how some real-life cases in these gray areas worked with our transmission pathway definitions, it was a, it was a very interesting process to me um, just because it had so much detail and so much thought put into it. And when you look at it on paper, it doesn't seem very long, but there's so much that actually went into just the transmission pathway definition. How many pathogens were looked at ultimately, and which were the most notable ones? I know there were a lot, as you just said. Yes, and that's one of the challenges with this study um, is just kind of the sheer size of it. You know, we looked at a total of 33 pathogens, um, and this included 21 bacteria, uh, 7 protozoa, and 5 viruses. Um, In addition, we also included questions to sort of encompass multiple clinical manifestations and serotypes for certain pathogens. So, for example, due to the diversity of Salmonella enterica, we included multiple serotypes and an additional category for children younger than five because these were some additional questions we had that needed more than just a single estimate for Salmonella. In another case, for Pseudomonas, uh, we included three separate clinical manifestations, looking at otitis externa, which is also sometimes called swimmer's ear, septicemia, and pneumonia. And because structured expert judgment looks at uncertainty, we we did not include, for example, some toxin-causing pathogens that are almost exclusively transmitted by food, um, which, as I mentioned before, Structured expert judgment should be used when there's uncertainty. So when things, when these pathogens are believed to be almost exclusively transmitted by food, then we don't need to use structured expert judgment to look at those. So ultimately, this led to a total of 47 questions across 33 pathogens. All right. Why don't you take a little bit of time right here to tell us briefly about your study? So 
You know, the process for designing this type of structured expert judgment study, it's really kind of divided into three primary stages. And those three are the preparation, the elicitation, and then the post-elicitation. So the preparation portion is incredibly important to ensuring the data that are produced are useful. Um, And it actually tends to take the most time um, with a study of this size. So what's kind of included in this preparation stage is, you know, identifying and selecting the pathogens that would be studied, you know, as I mentioned, creating those definitions for transmission pathways and the point of attribution, uh, selecting the experts that are going to be participating in the study, assigning experts to the pathogens that they would be providing estimates for, creating calibration questions to really kind of test the experts. Um, and then creating tools that would be used by the experts when they are actually providing their estimates. Um, As I mentioned before, too, a great deal of training um, accompanies this for the experts to make sure that they are, you know, applying the transmission pathway definitions in the way that they're designed, how to use the tools that we created, uh, how to provide these estimates. And then also, before we embarked on actually performing the elicitation, you know, we tested these materials with a group of experts that weren't actually going to be participating in the elicitation to ensure that they were user-friendly. So, as I mentioned, this stage tends to take the longest, but each of these steps are critical to ensure the data are useful. So, then step two is the actual elicitation. And for us, the elicitation stage was a two-day in-person workshop that included 48 experts. This stage included training, um, and it was a period in which the experts completed their calibration questions and provided estimates to the pathogens that they were assigned to. Um, Then finally, the post-elicitation phase is really when we do our data analysis. So not only for the pathogens, but also to evaluate the expert performance in the study. Um, And in doing that, data analysis, we did find excellent expert performance among our study participants. I'm sure you found an enormous number of very important issues, but what do you consider the most important issues that you found and anything different from other food and waterborne disease studies? So we did find differences from previous estimates for foodborne transmission for many different pathogens. Um, And I I think it's important to note that these differences can also exist just simply due to changes in data availability and the analytic methods that have become available over the years. Um, Just due to the sheer number of pathogens that we looked at, I won't go into all of them. I'll just highlight a few. Um, I think one example that we found pretty notable was for salmonella. You know, the most recent U.S. burden estimates that I kind of mentioned earlier that were produced in 2011 had an estimate for the proportion of illness transmitted by food at 94%, whereas our study estimated this at 66%. So that's kind of a large difference. Um, But that 66% that we found um, is much more similar to estimates done in other countries that also used structured expert judgment. Uh, Another example would be previous estimates used for foodborne transmission of astrovirus, rotavirus, sapovirus were all considered less than 1%. Our study estimated astrovirus at 15% foodborne transmission, rotavirus at 5%, and sapovirus at 13%, all of which are higher than that previous estimate of less than 1% being attributed to foodborne transmission. 
So that's just to highlight a few, especially with the foodborne transmission route. Um, as far as waterborne transmission, you know, this type of attribution with comprehensive pathways hasn't been done before in the United States. Um, so especially for the bacterial pathogens that we were included, this led to many um, pathogens estimates suggesting that the proportion of illness linked to water may be higher than was, a, was appreciated previously. Is there a way to stop or slow all these transmissions? Um, I know that's a really huge, broad question. Um, is there anything public health can do? Yes. Fortunately, there's been incredible progress made over the years with regards to food safety, water treatment, and sanitation. And while it isn't possible to completely stop food and waterborne disease transmission, um, public health is continuously working on these issues, and they continue to improve as we learn more. So some of what public health is, is doing uh, really include, you know, building capacity to improve surveillance, using things like molecular technology, whole genome sequencing, you know, collaborating with local, state, and federal partners to investigate outbreaks, you know, understanding the sources of sporadic illness, and sporadic illness is um, illness that's not associated with outbreaks, uh, to kind of develop and implement strategies to prevent, to prevent them in the future. Um, really using these results to help inform which pathogens cause the greatest burden so we can really target preventative efforts, and then communicating with the public about food safety risks and steps they can take to protect their health. You know, and then on the waterborne side, some of the work public health does really includes, you know, researching the health impacts, tracking disease, and developing new laboratory methods and materials, and then communicating also with policymakers, so not just the public, but also policymakers and sharing that information. What about individuals? What kinds of things should people be doing to protect themselves? A great question. So, with, you know, food safety, there are four big steps, and we kind of think of them as clean, separate, cook, and chill. So I'll kind of go into a little bit more detail about each of those. So cleaning really includes making sure that you're frequently washing your hands and cleaning off your cooking surfaces. Uh, separate really means to keep products like raw meat, poultry, seafood, and eggs, keeping those separate from ready-to-eat foods to prevent cross-contamination. This includes not only your cutting boards, but also while, the, while those products are in the fridge. Uh, cook includes making sure foods are cooked to an internal temperature that will kill the pathogens that can make you sick. And the best thing to ensure that this is being done is to use a food thermometer. Uh, and then finally, chill, which means to refrigerate perishable foods within two hours or one hour if outdoor temperatures are above 90. So, uh, and then thinking about water, you know, we come into contact with water in many different ways, which is one of the reasons it was important for this study that we look at those subdivisions, looking separately at these different sources of water, the so recreational drinking and the non-recreational non-drinking. You know, and, and while waterborne germs can cause gastrointestinal illness if they're swallowed, you know, they can cause illnesses in other ways too. So, for example, if they're inhaled, you can get illness in the lungs. If you have a wound that comes in contact with contaminated water, the skin and that wound can also get infected. So there, there are different ways other than gastrointestinal illness that water can cause um, sickness in folks. Um, 
And I'll just give an example here. When you know we think about recreational water, this can include aquatic facilities like swimming pools or natural bodies of water. You know, kind of wherever people are using it for recreational activities. You know, for swimming, the best thing to do is to keep the germs out of the water to begin with. So any individuals with diarrheal illness uh, in the past two weeks really shouldn't go swimming. And for those that are swimming trying to keep water out of their mouths, and then ensuring that they're drying their ears out after swimming uh, to help prevent otitis externa, which is also called swimmer's ear, like I mentioned before. Just some examples of things people can do. How would people dry their ears out? So, you know, one of the ways you can sort of keep your ears dry after swimming, you know, use a towel to dry your ears very well. You know, be sure to tilt your head um, and hold the ear facing down to allow that water to escape the ear canal. Uh, you can also pull on your earlobes in different directions while the ear is facing down to help ensure that water is draining out fully. You mentioned uh, earlier that there were um, uh, some challenges. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, I, I sort of mentioned it before, but one of the biggest challenges is just due to the sheer size and scope of this project. You know, it was a very large project that required collaboration between many different moving parts. Uh, it was a challenging task to coordinate these efforts, which included gathering input from experts on individual pathogens, uh, the research team at the University of Florida, our analytic team, who are the experts in the structured expert judgment methodology, the 48 expert participants, and then multiple teams just within CDC as well. You know, and then another challenge with this type of research uh, is that public health and infectious disease epidemiology can really change rapidly. So experts can really only provide estimates considering the data that's available at that time. And after they provide those estimates, you know, what we know about the transmission can change. Uh, so it's really important to consider kind of the context on when these estimates were given uh, when interpreting them. Are there any actions or further surveillance or research that you'd like to see done? You know, we've been very fortunate uh, in that this has already been used to produce burden estimates for waterborne diseases. So we're already getting to see how this work can be used for furthering our understanding of disease burden. Uh, one of the things I look forward to uh, with this data is it being used to provide updated foodborne burden estimates, uh, similar to the ones that have been produced for waterborne diseases. You know, but overall, I really hope these results continue to help lead to a deepened understanding of transmission through multiple routes so that these data can be used to support how resources are really targeted to prevent infectious disease spread through all pathways. Tell us about your work and what you enjoy most about it. I understand you're with CDC now, and when you wrote the article, you weren't? Yes, that's correct. So I was still at the University of Florida when I wrote this paper, um, and that was before I came to CDC. So when I came to CDC, I'm currently an, an officer with the Epidemic Intelligence Service here at CDC. I'm now currently with the division that works primarily in healthcare-associated infections. Um, and I've had a lot of opportunities to assist with outbreak investigations in these kinds of settings. Um, field work and really assisting with um, these sort of things has really been a piece that I really enjoy. And actually, my background is in nursing. Uh, so it's been really nice to kind of get back into the healthcare setting. Uh, and kind of interestingly, you know, 
Many of these investigations in healthcare settings often include transmission through water, so I've been able to carry over some of this work that we've been talking about into my current role. Well, along that same theme, what do you enjoy doing in your personal time? Well, (laughs) I've been spending a lot of time at home in this past year, which I think many of us are familiar with, Um, but that's given me really ample time to sort of cook and experiment with new recipes that I really enjoy. Um, It's something that I have always enjoyed, but it's given me some more opportunity to really get creative in the kitchen. I think I got three separate cookbooks as a Christmas gift this year, so it's given me even more material to work with. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Bashirs. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It was wonderful to talk with you. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the January 2021 article, Attribution of Illnesses Transmitted by Food and Water to Comprehensive Transmission Pathways Using Structured Expert Judgment. United States, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.